This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. My guest is Juliet Lapidos, author of the novel Talent. Lapidos is also an editor at The Atlantic Magazine and the editor of the op-ed and Sunday opinion section at the LA Times. When Talent opens, we meet the narrator, Anna Brisker, a graduate student in English at the fictional Ivy League Collegiate University. As Anna struggles to write her thesis, she meets a new friend named Helen, whose uncle was once a famous writer named Freddie Langley. Anna decides to focus her study on the idea of inspiration based on Freddie's notebooks she obtained from her new friend. Juliet Lapidos's talent explores the idea of inspiration and natural ability, motivation and lack thereof, the pressures of academia, and the lengths we will go in order to sabotage or alight upon our true path. We began the discussion with Lapidos explaining the origin of her novel. The thing that really got me going was reading The Parable of the Talents when I was in college. I took a Bible as literature class, and as part of it, we uh, read this story, which I think is a little less known than, say, The Parable of the Prodigal Son, so I'll just quickly say what it's about. Uh, The idea is that there's a master who is leaving his house to travel, and before leaving, he entrusts his property to three servants, according to the abilities of those servants. So he gives one servant five talents, talents being a unit of money. Uh, The second servant gets two talents, and the third servant gets just one. So the master leaves town, um, and while he's gone, um, the first servant, uh, the one who got the most talents, five, invests them and, and doubles his money. The second servant also invests the money and also does quite well. But the third servant is um, scared. We're told that he's worried about uh, the possibility of losing everything he has. So instead of investing the money, instead of investing his talent, he buries it in the ground. So when the master comes home, he asks his servants what happened. And he's delighted by the story of the first two servants. And the third one, he is extremely angry. He is outraged that his servant decided to to bury his talent. And so he punishes him and he takes that one talent away and he gives it to the most successful servant. So most people understand this parable to mean that the master stands in for God and that God expects people to do something with what they're given, which in a way is, you know, very straightforward and I suppose reasonable, but there's something a little bit horrifying about it. The idea that um, God will punish you if you don't do something with what you're given. So after reading that story in college, it was in my mind, on my mind a lot for years after. And um, when I started to write the book, that's what I was thinking about mostly. I initially set out to write kind of a modern version of the parable of the talents that explored the subject position of that third servant who has talent but doesn't use it and then is punished for it. And then the novel changed a lot and it became a lot less explicit. Uh, but that was the initial um, the the germ that led to the book. I also love the idea that talent is a word for money. That's like a very interesting uh, double meaning. And there's a famous poem by Milton in which he makes it explicit that he talks about that he he makes the move from talent as a unit of money to talent as a um, 
you know, meaning natural ability. So that's something that we read into the initial story. And I think we rightly read that into the initial story. But in the initial story, it really is just money that the people are, the servants are given money, and one of them doubles his money, and the other one does well, and the third one does nothing with it. You know, he, he hides his cash under his mattress, and he's punished for this. Your story in talent, and we'll talk about the, the actual story and the characters in, in a minute, is kind of thinking about the chase for inspiration and what inspiration is. And the title is Talent. So I'm mm-hmm. just kind of curious about the interplay and what you think about these two things. It seems to me that inspiration is something that comes from outside, or that's how it's usually described. It's like a lightning bolt moment. You're walking down the street and suddenly something clicks into place and you know how to solve the math equation you didn't previously know how to solve, or suddenly you have an idea for a song you want to write, or a play you want to write, or who knows, but it comes from outside. It doesn't seem like it's something that bubbles up from within, but something that happens to you. And talent, I think of, and again, I think this is how it's usually described in conversation and in books and that sort of thing, that it's internal, that it's something you're born with. So you're born with a natural talent to play basketball or you're, you're talented in that you're charismatic. These are internal qualities as opposed to external qualities. And I think in both cases, there's a lot of uh, mythologizing about what these qualities actually are and that they're a little bit fuzzy. You know, what does it really mean to have a lightning bolt moment? Does such a thing exist? You know, is it possible for inspiration to ever come from the outside or does it, of course, only come from the inside? And um, is there really such a thing as talent, as natural ability, or is everything just external? It's a matter of discipline or what happens to you in your life. So I say that there's the conventional understanding, one comes from outside, one comes from inside. And then in both cases, there's a lot of fuzziness about what that actually means. And that is part of what I was interested in exploring in the book, whether these qualities or whether these acts really are as they're often described. So, you know, you started off talking about this parable, and when you think about these big lofty ideas as a novelist, then you have to encapsulate them in a story with characters and setting and all of that. And so we have Anna Brisker, and she's a graduate student in English at a university called Collegiate University in a town called New Harbor that sort of seems a little bit like Yale. And she is getting her PhD. She needs to write her dissertation. She's kind of stumbling and decides that she is going to write about inspiration and look for an author and discover how he was inspired, maybe de-inspired and re-inspired. And that's how you encapsulated it. Tell me about how you landed on Anna and took these lofty ideas and brought it into a story. Well, certainly it took a while. And I think because this was the first attempt I'd made at writing fiction at any length, I'd written a couple stories that never went anywhere. And this was the first time I really thought, okay, I'm going to sit down and try to write something. And because most of the writing I'd done was um, argumentative, you know, essays in school or as a journalist, um, I think I tried to argue too much in the first draft and that it was too close to trying to encapsulate the parable of the talents and trying to argue something about it. And the more I worked on it, the more I let that slide away and that um, these ideas about the meaning of the parable of the talents and the meaning of talent and the meaning of inspiration, 
became more like the background of the book as opposed to the plot. And um, I tried to make it so that the plot didn't interact quite as much with the meaning as has been had been my original impulse. Uh, but yeah, I mean, what you the way you summarize the book, I think, is right. And um, you're right to say that the setting is basically Yale. That's what I had on my mind. That's where I was an undergraduate. When I was there, I thought New Haven was kind of an interesting place and I wanted to write about it. I didn't make it literally Yale because I didn't want to feel beholden to it. I didn't want to have the burden of being very accurate in describing the university and the city of New Haven. So I, I just very lightly fictionalized it, just basically changed names so that I didn't feel like I was writing a Yale novel, which I hope it is not. But the character of Anna is informed by a lot of different things, but um, I, I was interested in having a character who is kind of stuck and who uh, procrastinates and isn't able to um, you know, convert thought into action. And in this case, uh, the action that she's supposed to be doing isn't isn't really very active in the general sense of that word. Um, she's trying to finish her dissertation and she can't do it. Uh, but that um, stuckness kind of interests me, or it had interested in me in other books. So I wanted to try to see what that was like. And um, I'm sure you can see how that kind of plays into the idea of the parable of the talents. What do you do when you, you, you've been given something, uh, a gift, in the case of the parable of the talents, it's a unit of money. In her case, it's in theory, the ability to read books and write about them. She thought that she was good at this, and it turns out that um, she can't finish. So that that was the kind of germ of that character. Uh, you know, what does somebody do when they think they're good at something and everybody's told them they're good at something, but they can't actually, um, they can't do what it takes to prove themselves? Yeah, I was so curious about her and we, and if that was a function of being really close to the end. You know, I've had heard psychologists say, you know, you're just afraid. You're not even afraid of failure. You're afraid of success. Or, mm -hmm. you know, what what are the pressures that the outside world put on her? And what did she really want out of her life? And I don't think she knew what she wanted out of her life. But I'm wondering if you could talk mm -hmm. a little bit more about this, this ennui that she had. Was it fear? Was it psychological? And have you ever had that? I guess another thing I was interested in doing with the book is not having um, a totally clear answer to those questions. You know, so why can't she finish? I think there are a lot of possible explanations for why she can't finish. One is that um, she's not actually as good at um, scholarship as she thought she was. And that when it comes to delivering something that is sophisticated and, and long and you know, somewhat comprehensive, she can't do it. Um, and why can't she do it? Maybe because she's not good enough. I think that's one possible explanation. Um, another is that she doesn't actually like academia very much. That's certainly a, a position that I think a lot of graduate students eventually find themselves in. You know, they uh, people go into English as a um, course of study and then as a career because they love reading books. But it turns out that um, grad school isn't just about reading books. It's about reading articles. It's about reading articles that uh, um, encapsulate other people's thoughts about these books. It's very, um, it can be at a remove. Uh, so it's possible that she's she's just lost heart because she doesn't actually like doing this thing she liked doing or that she was doing because she thought she was good at it. So I think those are the two most uh, 
obvious reasons for why she can't finish, but maybe it's something else. Um, and I think that, you know, sometimes we look for clear psychological explanations for our inabilities when there, um, when there aren't any, or, or that maybe, again, things are actually simpler than we wanted them um, credit for, because it's too painful to say, well, maybe I can't do this because I'm not good at it. So we look for uh, you know, nuanced explanations, you know, something in somebody's past or, or something that sounds better than maybe you're just not very good at it. As for other, whether I've experienced that, not exactly. Um, you know, she certainly procrastinates a lot more than I ever did, but I suppose this is something I was scared of happening, which is uh, maybe why I'm not an academic. I certainly thought about it. I got a master's in English. I thought about getting a PhD. And then for a variety of reasons, I decided not to go in that direction. But one of those reasons was because I thought, I don't know if I'm actually going to be very good at this. You know, I can imagine myself getting stuck. Well, I think also in the, in the novel, there's a lot of ideas ideology around maximizing your potential. And the author that Anna decided to study, his name was Freddie Langley. And he's Mm -hmm. someone that was successful in his early career and then stopped writing for a while and came back. And so she had chosen him to look at the inspiration in his life. But I think that that idea of maximizing your potential in an academic setting is everywhere. Right. I mean, she, the, the, there are some very um, obvious, maybe too obvious correspondences between the, the writer that she ends up uh, becoming interested in studying or writing about and her own life. Although she doesn't really reflect on those um, similarities very much because I'm trying to suggest that she doesn't know herself all that well. But yes, the writer was successful early on as as she was, although in very different ways. He was successful in the sense that right out of college, he was able to publish these short story collections one after another about two years apart. Um, and she was successful in the sense that she did really well in college and then got into a good graduate program. And in the early years of that grad program was you know, publishing academic literature, and she did well on her oral exams, and then all she had left to do was write her thesis, and she couldn't. Um, and that's where we find her. And in Freddie's case, he he wrote these three uh, books that found pretty big audiences, and everybody thought that he would continue to have um, a successful career, and that he'd probably go on to write a novel, and then he just stopped. Um, and Nobody really knows why he stopped, although there's a lot of speculation um, about that. And part of the book is Anna trying to figure out, well, why did he stop uh, publishing after he was so successful to begin with? Um, And as in Anna's case, where you can kind of go, well, maybe she can't do it because she's not good enough. Maybe she can't do it because she doesn't really want to. Maybe there's some other factor involved that since she has money, she doesn't see the point. Um, And in his case, it's, it's similar. You can say, well, maybe he you know, had a bad case of writer's block, or maybe he developed some kind of philosophical rationale for not wanting to publish some kind of aversion to fame, like kind of like Salinger developed, or maybe there's something else. And in in both of their cases, they're also kind of intoxicated by this question of, well, if you don't have to produce something, why should you do it at all? I think in the society we live in, that's, that's, um, repellent to a lot of people, that we expect everybody to be productive and to do something with their lives. And these characters and others in the book ask the question, well, why? You know, why is it so necessary to produce something? 
Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. One thing that's going on in this town in New Harbor is that there is a coliseum that was built, and they're gonna they're they're gonna blow it up and build something mm-hmm. else there. And it made me think about that question about art. And while Anna is sort of wondering about inspiration and talent and in the notebooks that she's reading from Freddie, she's, you know, he's talking about like, let's do nothing. And why do we value ascension over plateau? You work your whole life to build something. In this case, it could be the design and building of the Coliseum that then they're going to blow up. So at the end, you're like, well, what's the point? (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Um, yes, th- right. There are things that are going on in the town that in the physical world kind of reflect some of the things that are going on more internally in some of these characters. So as you say, I mean, that this actually happened in New Haven, right? They, I think in the seventies as part of this urban renewal project, they built this kind of monstrous sports stadium, the Coliseum, um, in the brutalist architectural style. Was, I mean, it was total blight, um, in my opinion, um, you know, and for a while people actually came to it. Um, and then it was quickly surpassed by other, you know, uh, better outfitted, uh, sports arenas and nearby towns. Uh, so it was just empty. And then the city decided, okay, we just have to get rid of this thing. There's no, there's no improving it. Uh, and so they imploded it and built something, I think in its place, although for a while there was just a large parking lot there. Um, but it did sort of steamed, uh, sort of spoke to the futility of trying to do something like that. I mean, there was a lot of, uh, you know, a real desire to help improve the city that went into building this thing. And surely the people who built it thought it was really interesting architecturally. And then a couple of decades later, people just don't feel that way anymore. And um, I suppose a lot of things we do are like that. You know, so much energy goes into writing a book, you know, all sorts of things, you know, building a highway, uh, building a building, um, uh, you know, giving to charity. And then very shortly after you've done it, the world changes and people don't um, see your contribution in the same way that they used to. Yeah. You know, another question it raised for me was like, who does art belong to as, as we learn about this lawsuit with Freddie Langley's journals do they belong to his family? Do they belong to the university? And ultimately, do they belong to the people? Same thing with the Coliseum. Were you thinking about this question? Yes. Um, I mean, the question of who the notebooks belong to in some ways is just a plot device. You know, I had to I had to find a way for it to be somewhat difficult for her to access these um, notebooks and also to have some reason why the whole world doesn't already know about them or not the whole world, but anybody who is interested in this guy's career, you know, people who dedicate themselves to um, researching and um, writing about authors for a living. You know, why, why aren't these notebooks already out there? And I had to find some some uh, 
you know, contrivance. And that was this legal dispute. Helen says they belong to her. The university says it belongs to them. And therefore, they're in this kind of limbo where they're not publicized and people don't get to read them unless Helen says they can and the university says they can as well. And um, Anna's in this kind of unusual position in that she belongs to this university and she knows the person who also has to have sign off. And so she gets to read them. Uh, but yes, I mean, I do think there's this question of, well, who who gets to who gets to decide what happens to um, somebody's work after they're gone? And this, you know, comes up in the real world with some frequency. I mean, uh, Nabokov didn't want his last novel, the original of Laura, I think it's called, um, to be published. And he was pretty clear about that to his son. It was still in, he, he used to write on these note cards. And so the novel existed on a stack of note cards. And I think a, safe in Switzerland or something kind of ridiculous. And for a long time, his son, Dimitri, respected his father's wishes. And then at some point he thought, no, we'll just publish them anyway, even though my father asked me not to do it. Um, and there's lots of cases of this. Kafka asked his literary executor to um, destroy all of his work when he was dead. And the executor thought, no, that's ridiculous. And it's way too much to ask of me. If you'd wanted your work destroyed, you could have done it yourself. So I'm going to go ahead and publish this stuff. Um, I, I suppose it's possible that the story sometimes happens the other way and that we just don't hear about it. You know, writers who ask their families to destroy their work and the family does it and nobody's ever the wiser. Um, but I think in the case of very famous people like Nabokov or Kafka, um, the family members do end up feeling like this is just isn't right. I can't destroy this person's work. It means so much to people. This you know person was a master, um, and uh, you know if they if they had wanted to destroy, they should have done it themselves. It's not fair to ask that of me. So I, I do think those are interesting questions. Um, in this case, there's some. It's a little unclear what. Freddie, what the author wanted to happen to his notebooks when he was gone. And that becomes a, a question at the end. Anna gets a very definitive, or what she thinks, she gets this very definite idea of what she thinks he wanted to happen to the notebooks, but that's kind of at odds with what other people believe he, he even wanted. What would you want to happen to your writing? I don't know. I mean, I <laughs> I don't think anyone will care about my writing as much as they cared about Kafka's, so it's not really the same level of importance. Uh, but I guess I think that if there was something I didn't want people to know about, then I would just get rid of it myself instead of asking my family to do that. Well, you seem like a very motivated, very focused, disciplined person. I could be wrong, but that's what I, I'm, <laughs> I'm feeling from you. So I'm wondering about your writing process for this and was inspiration a part of it? Sure. I mean, I, I think of myself. Um, yeah, I think I am quite a disciplined person. Um, I have a day job. I'm a journalist. I'm an editor at The Atlantic. Um, and before that, I was an editor at various other places. So my time to write was kind of limited to weekends, which is how I write the, wrote the book. I you know, spent um, many weekends strung together over several years writing it. And so, you know, discipline has never been difficult for me. Ever since I was a kid, I've been very good at just like shutting the door <laughs> and studying for a long time or writing for a long time inspiration, even though I'm not even sure I believe in it, uh, was a little harder to come by. So I think that I'm the sort of person who works and then works until 
something happened. And um, I imagine that there are other people who who are who are very different. That they kind of um, they have these um, bursts of creativity, and um, that's when they get their work done. And it's not by just sitting down every day. Although I'm always a little skeptical of that because it's so foreign to my own experience. I find it a little hard to believe. I guess like these stories of people who just like lightning strikes, and then uh, you know a few days later they have a novel or a symphony or whatever. Um, I do. I I guess I that's my bias that I sort of think that art is a lot more about work and just sitting down and doing it than like stories would have us believe. Is there anything that you want to talk about the novel that I didn't ask you? The books that I like reading are often books that are not about character development. Um, there's a, there's a kind of novel that I think is often very dominant in which the point of the novel, if there is one, is to bring a character from from one stage to another and to show how they develop. And I think there's a lot of importance placed on character development and the idea that a character is three-dimensional um, in criticism, both scholarly criticism and, you know, the kind of criticism you see in the New York Times, just like contemporary responsive criticism. And I think that showing the depth of a character is not always the most important thing that a book can do. Sometimes there are more interesting structural things. Sometimes there are more interesting arguments that can be advanced. And I didn't want to write a book that was really about character development. You know, maybe that's because I didn't think I was capable of it. Writing that kind of big novel where everybody feels like they have all these layers and there's um, some kind of psychological crisis that has to be gotten over or some kind of maturation process. I don't know, maybe because I liked Seinfeld growing up and, you know, there's this uh, idea about Seinfeld that I think Larry David said, which is that in Seinfeld, you'd never have any hugging, you'd never have any crying and you wouldn't have any change, that the characters don't change. And I think that's kind of true to life. Like a lot of us don't really change that much. And so, you know, my concern now that the book is out is that people are going to be like, well, what, you know, what is with these characters? Like these characters don't change very much. And I think that's true, (laughs) but it was intentional. So that's something I've been thinking about. Can you read a passage from an author that speaks to you or influenced you as a writer? Sure, I'd be happy to. The a writer that I had on my mind quite a bit when I was writing Talent is uh, Goncharov. I think I'm pronouncing that right. He's a 19th century Russian novelist who's not quite as well known or frankly as good as um, Tolstoy or Dostoevsky, for example. But he wrote a really wonderful novel called Oblomov that was published in 1859. Um, it's about a superfluous man that's a type character that was popular at the time, who's um, the character is typically born into wealth and privilege, and he may be ca- capable, he may be like a talented person, but he's unmindful or indifferent to social issues. So he uses his power for his own comfort rather than the greater good, not because he's evil, but because he's careless or indifferent. Um, so Oblamov, the title character, is a young nobleman who's just incapable of making important decisions or acting uh, to the extent that he has trouble even leaving his bedroom. Uh, And famously, in the first 50 pages, all he manages to do is move from his bed to his chair. So I'm going to read a couple of short paragraphs from those first 50 pages. And the context is that he's in bed, and we're told by the narrator that he's received a 
quote, disagreeable letter from the bailiff of his estate. It has something to do with bad harvests and falling income. We're also told that he received the identical letter the year before and the year before that. So Ablamov is worried. He is very distressed. Um, so that's the context, and here's the passage. The whole thing was a great nuisance. He had to think of raising some money and of taking certain steps. Still, it is only fair to do justice to the care Ablamov bestowed on his affairs. Already, after receiving his bailiff's first unpleasant letter several years before, he had begun devising a plan for all sorts of changes and improvements in the management of his estate. According to his plan, various economic, administrative, and other measures would have to be introduced, but it was far from being thoroughly thought out, and the bailiff's disagreeable letter went on arriving every year, arousing in him the desire to do something and consequently disturbing his peace of mind. As soon as he woke, he made up his mind to get up, wash, and after he had had breakfast, think things over thoroughly, come to some sort of decision, put it down on paper, and generally make a good job of it. He lay for half an hour, tormented by this decision, but afterwards it occurred to him that he would have plenty of time to do it after breakfast, which he could have in bed as usual, particularly as there was nothing to prevent him from thinking while lying down. Um, so it goes on in that vein for a few paragraphs, but a lot of the book is like that. There's this character who's thinking about acting, but who's not able to convert thought into action, which um, I think is a pretty common human attribute, but it's not so often captured in fiction, probably because authors are worried about, you know, boring, boring their readers to tears by just describing somebody not doing anything. And you like that? I like it very much. I mean, I think I like it in part because it is a little unusual. I mean, you know, H Hamlet, I suppose, is also an example of um, a piece of writing about someone who isn't doing what he is supposed to be doing. But in Hamlet's case, what he has to work up the energy to do is kill the king. You know, the stakes are very high. And in the case of Oblamov, it's about writing a letter back to his bailiff, and he can't even get up the energy to do that. So I find that very funny. And the challenge interests me of how do you write about somebody not doing something? Um, how, you know, how do you sustain 50 pages of somebody moving from their bed to their chair? You know, especially when the character is somebody, it's not like he's having these incredibly deep thoughts about the universe while he's lying in bed. It's more like he's just thinking about the things he has to do that he can't do for whatever reason. Can you read something you wrote? Maybe it was tricky or changed a lot from the first draft or something that you dislike. I should say that, you know, I never took a writing class unless you count this half credit class I took in high school. And of course, I read a lot. And I thought that would kind of have me covered when I decided to write a book. But when I started, I realized I didn't know how to do something very basic. That is, I didn't know how to make time move. So for example, I tried to write a dinner scene in which I described absolutely everything. You know, the characters make plans, the waiter arrives, they order from the menu, they wait for the food, the food arrives. What does it taste like? Um, and this was really terrible, which I realized after I reread it to myself. So that scene um, changed a whole lot. And eventually I scrapped it. Um, but then when I did, you know, probably more than two years later, when I'd kind of gotten my sea legs and I needed to write a, um, a scene in which two characters have dinner together, what I did was I, um, I moved things uh, internal. So instead of describing every step of the dinner, I, just, I basically described almost nothing at all. Um, I just described the characters' thoughts instead as a way to say to the reader, you know, time is moving because the character is thinking about something. 
so this is from the first quarter, first third of the book, and um, Anna is at Helen's house for, I think, the second time. So this is the passage. I followed Helen into the sitting room, which doubled as a dining room. We arranged ourselves on either side of a fold-out table that was usually a resting place for papers, but now held our meal, spaghetti with red sauce on mismatched plates. As if it mattered what she served. Some authors could build a scene around food. They found significance in under-buttered rolls and improperly folded napkins. They found lyricism in crisp baguettes, soft white cheese, dry red wine, and the dry witticism exchanged over that dry red wine. I guessed they were slow eaters. How else could they have observed so much? Whereas I consumed so quickly that I didn't really notice anything except, in this particular case, that the cook had used too much salt and that my dining companion was a partisan of the spoon support technique for pasta. When I was learning how to feed myself, no one had suggested that method, and it still seemed exotic, more foreign than chopsticks. Where do you write? Usually I write in my bed. What do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? I go to work. I have a day job. I'm an editor at The Atlantic, so that's pretty easy for me to do. Who do you show your work to first to get feedback? My husband. How have you dealt with rejection? By feeling sorry for myself. And what is your favorite word? It's probably booze. I think boo words are kind of funny, like boobs. And um, so are ooze words like snooze. And I find the combination sort of hilarious for some reason. You've been listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest was Juliet Lapidos, author of the novel Talent. You can follow First Draft on Facebook. Just look for First Draft, a dialogue on writing and click like. And on Twitter at First Draft APR. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. Thanks for listening.